The Singer by Folly Publishing. I am what they used to call an itinerant singer of songs. I am what they used to call a travelling minstrel, a circuit rider, just flick through the forest of luggage labels on my suitcase handle, and you'll understand. I am like a Methodist preacher, a Jesuit priest, only I travel from nightclub to nightclub, not church to church, and I've got Cole Porter and Irving Berlin for my St Peter and St Paul. My father used to call himself an amateur dancer. That was his laugh line, his catchphrase. He'd say it after dancing a dance so well on the vaudeville stage that it would have made Fred Astaire blush. Then he'd finish on a pratfall, a forward roll and a curtain call. There I was, young and skinny, with jug handle ears and a golf ball Adam's apple, watching him from the wings and waiting with a cold towel to wrap around his head when he came off the stage. He could sing too, and he'd picked up a twisted imitation of the bel canto style from somewhere. He taught me how to control my breath, to take care with the higher notes, to glide over the vowels, and he showed me how to sing zing when the strings of my heart his way. I made my name singing it, with Geraldo and his gaucho tango orchestra at the Chiswick Playhouse. We would do four shows each night, from early morning until dawn, and we finished each one with the moon was yellow and the night was young, to showcase all the bristling flamenco sounds that the band will become famous for. I tried my hand at acting too, and I did a screen test for Carol Reed up on the roof of the Palladium Theatre. I can picture him up there, setting up his 16mm silent film camera by the red tiled chimney pots, and I lost my footing on the fire escape steps as I climbed. He asked me to turn from side to side to catch my profile, and to repeat idioms like you can't judge a book by its cover, and curiosity killed the cat so he could capture my mouth moving. It's funny, I don't remember hearing anything back from him. I moved around a lot in those days. I was a difficult person for a letter to find. Girls came and went, but only one or two left a mark. Do you remember Mercy Alice Bates? She co-starred with me in my one and only play, and then she made it big in pictures and went to America, and I went with her. I remember sitting with Mercy in the Black Heart restaurant in Chicago, listening to the Meltons, and she was elegant, well-travelled and blooming. I can recall shifting gears in her green Alfa Romeo as some newspaper men chased us down Belmont Avenue, and I remember travelling to Hollywood with her on the El Capitan train, and everyone wanted her picture when we walked up Sunset and Vine. On the RKL lot, she'd make up and wait for her call, while I would flick through the pages of an old Reader's Digest almanac I'd found on the train. She was nervous. We'd go over her lines, over and over in the hotel room at night, and she'd flunk every third word and collapse into floods of tears on the bed. So I cut a picture of a baby cacao out of the Reader's Digest almanac and stuck it on the bedroom door. When she could feel the nerves building, I would tell her to stop and take a breath and look at the picture of the bird and think of all of its problems in the world with all that fuzzy grey hair and pink feet. Strangely enough, Mercy made it big in some film called Leda and the Swan, appearing half-naked and surrounded by handmaidens and water lilies a quarter of the way through. The last time I saw her was early one morning on Fifth Helena Drive. She seemed sad. She was a blue girl in a red sunrise, and she was trying to play innocent, but it didn't wash with me.
So I figured it was best to get out and make a fresh start, and I made for Cuba and got a job singing twice nightly at Kelso's pub on the Havana waterfront. Kelso's joint was frequented by Americans, and we would play American tunes. I even feigned a New York accent for the pitter-patter between the songs because Zeke Kelso wanted it that way. Zeke would stand by the side of the stage at the bar, the fiery ring of his cigarette flaming and abating like a lighthouse lamp. He appeared to be a sea of calm on the surface, but I knew that he was running with a bad crowd. We looked a little alike, and I was grabbed from behind one night by a gang of men in raincoats and fedoras. They shoved a gun into my guts and told me to walk towards a car, or else my insides would get a sharp introduction to ten of their little blue-tipped friends. I yelled and I screamed, and it was only when they caught sight of my picture on a poster outside the pub that they realised they had gotten the wrong guy. I stayed at a boarding house run by Carmelo de Piazza and Sylvie Unsworth. He was from Capri and worked at the embassy, and she had run away from home. I became ill in that house. I caught something from drinking the water and a fever flared. So Sylvie propped me up on pillows and kept me alive on small quantities of wine-soaked bread. There was not much I could do in a situation like that, but sit and sweat it out and try and keep my mind moving to a rhythm. In my sickbed, I picture myself on the stage while Zeke Kelso paced up and down trying to find an act to fill my hour. I'd inhibit my own personal theatre as sweat poured down my forehead and I'd sing Stardust and Zing went the strings of my heart in my head as I slipped in and out of consciousness. After a week or so, Sylvie thought I was fit enough to hear that Kelso had been shot in the back of a Buick on the course road and Kelso's pub had been torched by anti-American elements of a rising wave of discontent. She helped me to get dressed and I was corralled downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs, I saw my packed suitcase. I protested. I said anything that Zeke Kelso was involved in was none of my business, but my card had been marked by association. Carmelo was peeping out of the open kitchen door as noisy motorcycles trundled up and down the cobbled street. He hustled me into the back of a cab and kissed my cheek, and the car sped off through military roadblocks towards an airfield by the sea and a waiting two-propeller aeroplane. I felt, as I ran up the steps, past the whirring propellers, that I hadn't been in control of my life for years, and that I was simply being hustled along by forces beyond my control. Back in London, I was way down at the bottom of the bill at the talk of the town. It was some time around then that Jessie Matthews came into my life. Once upon a time, she was England's greatest star, but by then we were both middle-aged, and she was plump and 48, and doing washing-up liquid adverts for ITV. In her day, she was a far greater dancer than Ginger Rogers, I'd say, and a better actress too. She had enormous blue, silent film star eyes, but she lived on her nerves. Jessie was as blast to be around until she wasn't, and her temper could change quicker than a ribbon of cold air moves through a warm room. To me, seeing Jessie in a good mood felt like that rush in your chest that you feel on a Wednesday when you think of Saturday, but Jessie in a bad mood was as desolate as a rainy Monday morning. She told me once that if we sat and repeated the lyrics of I Concentrate on You by Cole Porter for long enough, then we would find Nirvana. 
so we tried, and made fifty-five repetitions in her back garden on a July afternoon, but we didn't see anything but airplanes, and the airport flight path, and a couple of kites. Time and events passed me by. A blonde woman shot a boy racer outside the Magdala pub, and there were posters up for a general election, but nothing could surpass Jessie in my mind. She had an almost perfect capacity for choosing the wrong man, though. She was never interested in me, really, because I was far too nice to her, and she liked me too much. Jessie was only really interested in men who weren't a match. The mismatch attracted her. Then, after a row, she would come running to me, making out that she could never have guessed that her latest man could have been so cruel, and I had to sit there and go along with her delusions, or she wouldn't talk to me for months. I remember driving Jessie to London Airport once. It was maybe the last time I saw her. It was December, there was snow coming down, and the heating in the car had frozen up. I asked her if she was cold, and she said she was. You could see our breath, and I reached out, and I touched her hand, and she burst into tears. It's funny how people come and go. She was there, and then she disappeared. I often thought, years ago, that if I could just get a string section of a pickup orchestra to sound the way I actually felt inside, then I would sell a trainload of records. I wanted a string section to reflect the excitement I felt welling up in my heart, and all the colours that I could see in my mind when I listened to music. I wanted my tunes to reflect my desire for movement, my desire to be constantly on the move, and to run through underground tunnels, down Piccadilly, to run to get no place in particular, only to be there, in the middle of it all, soaking it all up. Instead, all I ever seemed to get were placid, grey and plodding arrangements, dull thoughts wrapped up in duller sounds. Think of Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen, Richard Rogers. They all look like fusty old bank managers in their photographs. It's a mystery how those grey-suited, bespectacled old men could come up with the beautiful songs they turned over to the likes of you and me. Sometimes I really sit and wonder why I carry on night after night, town after town, singing in another theatre or another club. But, you see, everyone gets pushed and shoved around in life, but the stage is where I make my stand, the stage is where I build my case in those first few minutes under the lights to hold my position for the rest of the night and sing my heart out. I would go to the Albert Hall on a Saturday night with a ticket stub for a gallery seat and I would stare down, chin in my hands, at Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nancy Wilson and Sarah Vaughan. And what did I learn? Well, nothing about phrasing or breathing, if that's what you think. No, that comes from the heart, not the head. I have learnt that the way you approach the microphone sitting in its stand on that first song is everything. Every great singer I've ever seen walks to the stand with swagger but I am much more careful. I tend to be terrified, even after all these years, so I approach the microphone stand gingerly as the orchestra builds and builds to my first line. With my eyes closed, I reach out, and the cold of the metal microphone stand still chills me to the core and takes me by surprise. I start to sway. I sway with the band, and I feel the backbeat in my heart, and if I can't feel it, then I search for it. I take a breath. I open my mouth, 
and I make a sound. And if I hit my first line, then the next line comes, and the next line, like a miracle almost, made possible by nights spent poring over lyrics and key changes. Then I rebound. I feel reinvigorated, and I'm often running like a steam locomotive, like the El Capitan train, steaming through the Nevada desert, steaming through the mountains and the valleys, past the frontier towns and the movie sets, towards the first interval and the bar, and a couple of stiffeners. It's about then that I realise that I'm through the worst. It's about then that I realise that I'm safe. Safe at the talk of the town. Safe in the knowledge that my bad memory and a frog in my throat won't hold me for ransom this time. A swell of confidence washes all over me, from head to toe, and I feel that I can open my eyes, and as I do, a whole sea of eyes meet mine, and through some strange kind of alchemy, through a trick of the mind, I feel that I can take it, that I can meet those eyes head on and carry on regardless. I take a look behind me, and I smile a little, to let the band know that I'm feeling them, and that they are doing just fine. I pick out the conductor, and I give him a wink. He's on the tip of his toes, with his arms in the air, on the very crest of a musical wave, and with a rush forwards, and a crash of the drums, I commit my life to the tune, and I fall backwards into the chorus of Zing when the strings of my heart.